Welcome to Filled to Flourish with Luke and Lauren. Where emotional health takes a stage and your story matters. Hey guys, uh, I'm so glad to be sharing with you today on a topic that is really important to me. Uh, it's something that I'm really passionate about actually. So Luke is actually not here with me. It's just me today. Uh, he is working in Bangkok, which is the capital city of Thailand, about 12 hours south of where we live. He's there uh, doing counseling and debriefing for an international school. And so we've been alone this week, uh, but we've made it through. There's been a few bumps, but nothing too significant. Um, and I have been putting together an episode that I'm really excited to share with you all about brain health and its connection to uh, what we do, what we don't do, what we eat, what we don't eat, um, and just that overall part of brain health from a physiological perspective. So I will be sharing today uh, the top five essentials that I believe research, research shows are important, most important for optimal brain health from a physiological perspective. So as you know, if you've listened to Phil to Flourish before, we really focus on emotional health from more of the spirit heart level. Is that something that Luke and I are both really passionate about? But I am a nutritional therapist and a registered nurse, and I've been in this field, um, these fields together for several years now. And we, um, Luke and I kind of always joke and say, which part is harder to heal? Which part is harder to restore? The physiological body or the spiritual, emotional body? Um, you know, mental health or physical health. And we kind of banter back and forth because there's actually not an answer to that. They're both highly complex and highly interconnected. And so we feel like it would be important to bring to the table of the conversation here at Field to Flourish the topic of physiological health of the brain as an organ, um, which directly impacts mental and emotional health. And so that's why we're doing this episode today to give you more insight into how, uh, what creates optimal brain health. So obviously, just like everything else, we're not covering all the nuanced things and we're not talking about specific situations that may be on the periphery of these um, five priorities. We're covering the general um, principles that are beneficial to the vast majority of humans. And so um, it won't be too sciencey. I think it'll be fine and digestible for most people, but I'm going to jump in with uh, priority number one. So for optimal brain health, we need to be eating a diet that is balanced in macronutrients. So your macronutrients are carbs, proteins, and fats. There's just three things that we actually get um, calories from as humans, and then those are the categories of carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. So these are referred to as macronutrients. Humans need each macro for a wide variety of different functions, and we need them in balance with one another. This is a really important part. And if you know anything about science in the body, balance is like 
the the most important thing, you know, hormones not too high or too low, um, sleep not too much or too little, like all of these things that the body needs internally and externally, it's all about balance. And so the same is true for macronutrients. So a general um, principle for ratios of what's a good balance would be 40% of your calories coming from carbohydrates, 30% of your calories coming from fats, and 30% from protein. That is a a very generic uh, but good average for what you would want your macronutrients to be at. Unfortunately, a lot of people, because uh, carbohydrates are a quick source of fuel and they're just abundant in modern diets, most people's carbohydrates are like 60 to 70% of the calories in their diet are coming from carbs. And this tends to be way too much for most people. Uh, Then I see fats often being high. Uh, Generally, I see the more un, the more processed unnatural fats, which would be unhealthy fats, being too high in the diet. And protein, people generally don't overdo protein. That's the one that's kind of harder to get, requires more preparation and cooking, and um, people generally don't get enough protein. Obviously, these are just um, trends that I see, but they're definitely consistent. People get too many carbs. So we're going to talk about that for a minute because balanced blood sugar is crucial to good brain health. And so a lot of times, you know, what do you think of when you hear the word blood sugar? Because um, a lot of people just picture that family member they have who has diabetes and has to take insulin injections and that's it. Well, the reality is everyone has uh, some level Well, everyone has blood sugar control, whether it's tightly controlled and the mechanisms are really strong, or on the other end of the spectrum, very poorly controlled, and they've, you know, entered into that realm of diabetes, and they need medication to control their blood sugar for them. So it's a continuum, and when blood sugar mechanisms are regularly imbalanced, think of a blood sugar roller coaster. That's the term I like to use with my clients. When that's happening throughout the day, every day, it leads to, um, even from day to day, anxiety, mental fogginess, dizziness, reduced attention, and irritability. Um, those are some of the, the symptoms that people have when they're on that blood sugar roller coaster from day to day. And then long term, it can lead, um, and it does lead, to insulin resistance, which is at the core of diabetes and many other chronic health issues. Insulin resistance is actually not too little insulin, but as it says in the name, it's a body's resistance to the insulin that's inside the bloodstream. The body becomes so sick of the high levels of insulin flowing through at all times because of the high level of blood sugar. So you see insulin is like the key that gets blood sugar into the cell so it can be utilized. So it, it, in effect, lowers your blood sugar. However, when your blood sugars run high all day long from a high-carbohydrate diet, your insulin begins to run high all day long as well. And the body does not like high insulin. Insulin is actually an inflammatory hormone. And if you think of it um, like an SOS pad, it's very abrasive to the inside of our vessels. 
And that's why when you hear people with diabetes, they end up getting like um, eye issues and they need amputations of limbs and kidney issues and heart issues. Those are all the effects of insulin and all that inflammatory response on the vessels, the delicate thin vessels in the eyes and in the vessels of the heart and um, kidneys. And it damages those so much that then they no longer work properly um, and that leads to disease. So high insulin um, is a major issue. And when the blood sugar is regularly high and the insulin is regularly high because of that, it actually leads to brain inflammation which some research is showing is a primary cause of depression. So um, they've learned so much about depression in recent years, and they're realizing that um, inflammation is one of the main causative factors, and blood sugar is often behind that. Alzheimer's has actually been coined type 3 diabetes by some, as it's been shown that high with high blood sugar levels over time, there becomes serious damage to the brain tissue as brain tissue is actually uniquely susceptible to the effects of high blood sugar. So balanced macronutrients is the foundation, I would say, to healthy brain health. You want to have a nice balanced ratio of proteins, fats, and carbs that you're eating on a daily basis. The next thing I'm going to talk about is water. So um, water is like so obvious, we all know that it's important for health, uh, but sometimes I think we don't know why. And so what we should be getting, uh, this is what I share with my clients, is we should be drinking half our body weight in ounces a day. So if we're 200 pounds, we should be drinking 100 ounces of water a day. If we're 150 pounds, we should be drinking 75 ounces of water a day. And then you actually want to add more for any amount of diuretic that you drink. Diuretics are sodas, juice, alcohol, tea, coffee. Uh, we'll talk about that more in a minute. So your brain doesn't actually have a way to store water. So regular fluid intake is very important. The neurons, which are the brain's messengers, they fire more easily when they're properly hydrated. Your mood, energy, and concentration are better when hydrated. And by the time you actually feel thirsty, you are already mildly dehydrated. So you actually want to stay sipping water throughout the day a steady amount. That's preferable to chugging large amounts at a time. The body's better able to utilize and get the, that um, fluid where it needs to go when it's slowly sipped throughout the day. And if you do that, you'll find you don't often feel super thirsty, which is, like I said, a sign of mild dehydration. You don't really want to get to that point if at all possible. So you should be bringing water with you everywhere you go and not not have, you know, more than a half an hour or so go by that, that you haven't drank anything. So the first essential is balanced macronutrients. The second essential is optimal hydration. And we're going to talk about sleep now as the third essential. So most people, sorry about that. That was a kiddo knocking on the door. Um, most people need seven to nine hours a night of sleep. This is the 
average that covers the vast majority of people and the optimal level of sleep uh, that they require. So good sleep is important for every bodily function. It helps our mental and our physical health, immune system. It lowers the risk of chronic disease. It helps manage the ability to maintain or lose weight, keeps our inflammation levels in check, and keeps our insulin levels um, low and managed. So certain parts of our brain are actually much more active during sleep than when we're awake, which is so fascinating because if you look at a sleeping person, they look like they're doing very, very little when in actuality their brain is, um, some parts of their brain are kicked into overdrive and they have a lot to do during sleep. So if you imagine if your sleep is really disrupted or not enough, you're not getting those things done. So researchers are regularly coming across new brain activities that are happening during sleep. Sleep is something that's kind of um, been studied more in recent years, and it's just amazing what they're finding is happening during sleep. So there's this system that's like our brain's sewage and recycling system, and it's activated when we go to sleep. And what it does is it removes the toxins and in waste from the day and clears them from the body or gets them to the place where they need to be to be cleared. The brain takes in all the information we come across during the day. So for instance, if you're trying to learn something and you get that data inputted during the day while you're sleeping, the brain will be organizing, categorizing things up by importance and then replaying helpful data so it can be put into memory. So sleeping actually helps us learn. I don't think it's so much laying on the textbook under our pillow um, but the actual action of sleeping that helps our brain learn what we need to learn. Good sleep encourages good mental health and emotional resilience, while poor sleep leads to negativity and emotional vulnerability. Disruption of sleep affects levels of neurotransmitters, which are our brain's messengers, kind of like brain hormones, and it affects our stress hormones impairing our thinking and emotional regulation during the day. And if you've ever been with a sleep-deprived toddler who's missed his nap or got really bad sleep the night before, you know what I mean about emotional regulation and sleep being super connected. So poor sleep actually is wor um, worsens mental health conditions and vice versa. Mental health conditions contribute to poor sleep. Uh, when you look at the research of who has uh, sleep issues, people with mental health issues, even depression, anxiety, but also like ADHD, autism, um, and then, you know, bipolar, schizophrenia, people tend to have really uh, poor sleep patterns if there's mental health issues involved, which is so frustrating because then the poor sleep actually um, enhances those negative behaviors that they that they struggle with from their mental health conditions. So it's really a vicious cycle and prioritizing um, good sleep hygiene is super important, especially, I mean, for everyone, but especially if you struggle with anything in the mental health realm, because getting that good sleep is going to be crucial to you managing um, your mental health. So let's review. Number one, balanced macronutrients. Number two, 
good hydration. And number three, prioritizing good sleep, making that a really big priority for your health. So the fourth one is more things to avoid that tend to have negative impact on uh, brain health. So we're going to cover sugar, alcohol, and caffeine. And I know with that list, I have offended every single person listening, probably, um, depending on what you're more drawn to. Uh, for me, it's sugar, and that has caused a lot of problems in my life <laughs> because I have had such a sweet tooth as a child. Um, and yeah, for a lot of people, I notice with clients, it's usually don't talk about coffee. I can't talk about coffee. It's such an important part of my life. And so I know that as I bring up this fourth priority of significantly reducing or sometimes eliminating caffeine, sugar, and alcohol, there's going to be some frustration that people might be feeling. But stick with me. I want to give you some of the research so that you can make more mindful choices about what you consume. And just to know, because even if you can't make any changes right now, it's, it's helpful to know um, how the body works and why it responds to these substances. So we all know the short-term effects of alcohol in the brain. Whether we've experienced it, seen it, watched it in movies, we know that alcohol on the brain um, does some crazy things, sometimes funny, sometimes not funny at all. But the long-term effects of alcohol are more concerning. Alcohol kills brain cells, some of which cannot grow back, and it shrinks the frontal lobe brain tissue, which affects, um, if you know about the frontal lobe, that affects so much of our humanness and how we engage in the world. It affects our judgment, memory, language ability, social behavior, cause and effect. Um, Yeah, so alcohol can affect the frontal lobe. It also disrupts the uh, circadian clock rhythms, um, which affects sleep. And a lot of people realize that um, pretty, pretty soon. Like that doesn't need to take many years for that to come into play. Alcohol also affects sexual function, short-term and long-term, which these things, not sleeping and poor sexual function, definitely affect our mental health. Alcohol can lead to abuse easily, as we know, and also addiction. So when these things, um, start to develop, it's it's often because alcohol is a very accessible way to maladaptively cope with mental health challenges. Um, however, it then results in more mental health challenges as addiction develops because once there's an addiction, um, you know, you're not just running from the thing you want to numb, you're now having another problem that's been created by um, just the strong physiological effect of alcohol on the brain. Um, so that is alcohol's effects. Sugar's effects, um, sugar activates the reward system that releases dopamine. And dopamine is the same neurotransmitter that comes when we do anything pleasurable, whether it's, you know, good, bad, or neutral. Dopamine is what gets released, uh, that gives us that pleasure response, um, I should say, too, that most Americans, um, probably most Western countries, um, I'm not really sure about the entire world, but as industrialization has gone all over the world, uh, for the most part, 
sugar consumption has skyrocketed. So most Americans eat and drink, don't forget the drinks, uh, five times the safe amount of sugar levels in one day. So this is super common of an issue. Um, So consuming sugar too much and too often leads to this reward system from dopamine actually becoming hijacked. And our cravings for sugar will come when it's not being consumed. So we start to crave it regularly. And this can become an actual addiction complete with withdrawal symptoms. So one of the criteria for something to be an addiction is that um, there's uh, cravings that are consistent and strong and then withdrawal symptoms that come when it's not being consumed. And this happens when sugar is, uh, when someone stops eating sugar. With my practice, when people get off of sugar, usually it's one of the hardest things along with coffee to get off of. Um, And they really feel pretty crappy for about a week, sometimes a bit longer as their body is really dealing with withdrawal symptoms and detox as well. So eating sugar also releases serotonin and we love serotonin. We love to feel that warm, happy rush of hormones that serotonin gives us. So the problem is though, it uses up necessary stores that we need and it ends up leading to depletion. So we eat the sugar, serotonin is released and every time we're eating sugar, we're releasing serotonin and we end up becoming depleted which can cause depression and other mental health issues. It also can cause pain conditions when you have low serotonin, PMS or menopausal issues, carbohydrate cravings, sleep issues, and GI symptoms. So low serotonin is um, can really make you feel really cruddy, and that's what keeps you going back to the sugar, probably because you're already low, trying to get that boost. Um, but it's a compensatory mechanism that is... Uh, going against, it's not in your favor anymore. Um, It's also connected to neurodegenerative diseases and most other chronic health issues. Um, They're just finding crazy amounts of connection to high blood sugar and the intake of sugars with chronic health issues. Uh, Having these problems, like we could imagine, would have a direct impact on our emotional and mental health. So caffeine is the third substance I'm going to cover. Caffeine causes the release of adrenaline, which most of us know. Adrenaline is uh, adrenal hormone. The other name for it is epinephrine. And it activates the body's fight or flight response system. So this can cause anxiety, irritability, and lead to energy crashes once that uh, rush of hormones have subsided. So research actually shows that one cup of coffee a day imparts the most benefits with the least negatives, okay? So coffee does have a lot of benefits to it with the phytonutrients and different um, chemicals, not like unnatural chemicals, but just part of the coffee bean chemical that can be beneficial to the body. But the research shows that one cup a day is really the optimal level to be consuming to not um, to get those benefits and also not to reap the negative side effects. But most caffeine consumers end up having a hard time keeping their intake low because caffeine, like other drugs, causes the need for higher consumption to have the same outcome. Um, so caffeine is the world's most widely used psychoactive drug. 
um, psychoactive, meaning it, it directly impacts the brain. Um, and the fact that it's a drug doesn't need to feel shameful or scary. I think it's just important to know that it uh, it's considered a drug and it has those strong impacts on the body. And that's why it's hard to control and manage um, the amount of intake we, we have of caffeine because it's it has the strong pull of a drug physiologically. So um, it's also a diuretic, which I talked about a little bit. Um, diuretics actually mean your body excretes more fluid than the amount of fluid you're consuming in the caffeinated drink. So say you drink 10 ounces of coffee, your body is actually going to end up uh, excreting more than 10 ounces from that 10 ounces you drink because it contains diuretic properties. So drinking caffeine and not making up for that loss leads to a low level chronic dehydration that so many people regularly have and they have no idea it's contributing to how they think and feel. So everyone is different in regards to caffeine. And I've seen clients who stop drinking it and are shocked to find out symptoms they've had, you know, that they've been dealing with that they would have never connected to caffeine, even that I wouldn't have connected, that completely go away. But other people can tolerate a low to moderate amount of caffeine without any negative effects or, you know, not any obvious negative effects. So this is where bioindividuality comes into play. Some foods, like sugar, are just negative for everyone, and they're more straightforward, whereas other things aren't as clear-cut. So it's really important to listen to your body and find out um, how much caffeine you need, not need, <laughs> we don't need any caffeine, it's not an essential nutrient, how much caffeine you can um, consume on a regular basis that isn't causing symptoms. And the best way to do that is to lower your consumption um, dramatically or take it away for a time and then add it back in and see how you do. That's the best way. So those are the three, caffeine, alcohol, and sugar, um, the three substances that have a very strong impact on brain health. And uh, how much we consume of those substances directly impacts our emotional and mental health, uh, or can, often can. So the last priority uh, essential to optimal brain health is movement, uh, physical activity. And uh, I'll just share a little bit about why this is so good for the brain. Exercise boosts serotonin, but it doesn't deplete it uh, unless you were to over-exercise, which is possible. Some people do that. But um, in general, it just gives serotonin a boost, which is our happy neurotransmitter, and, and also boosts dopamine, which is our reward neurotransmitter, and endorphins, which is a pain-relieving um, chemical that gives a lot of, um, when our endorphins are low, people just don't feel well overall. So exercise brings a boost to all three of those. It also increases norepinephrine, which is a neurotransmitter that helps the body modulate stress. And we all need help managing stress effects on our body because in reality, we cannot eliminate our stress. We need to be able to manage it and let our body find ways to support our body so that it can stand up underneath it and not, um, not be damaged over time from the, stress, the effects of stress, the very real effects. 
So norepinephrine helps our body do that, and exercise increases norepinephrine. Very cool. Exercise can also help prevent the degeneration of the brain that leads to dementia. And interestingly, uh, ages 25 to 45 are particularly important when it comes to exercise's impact on future dementia. So not to say like, oh, when you're 55, 65, don't start exercising if you haven't yet. It'll certainly benefit your body. But there's this special window of those couple decades, exercise and health in that time, taking care of your body through movement, that has an impact on future development of dementia or not. Being active also increases memory ability and learning, and it helps the body relax and fall asleep. Um, sometimes they say like five to six hours before going to bed is the best time actually to help you fall asleep at bedtime. But uh, earlier than that is fine too. You just don't want to exercise too late to, um, before bedtime. Usually that makes it more challenging. But again, everyone is different. Um, exercise reduces brain inflammation and actually can create new brain cells, which up, into, up until more recently, they didn't even know was possible. They just knew that brain cells... Um, once they die, they don't grow back, and you know over time the brain has less and less. But they're finding there's certain things like exercise that can a reduce the brain inflammation, but also create new brain cells, which is called neurogenesis, which is just a remarkable thought that our brain can actually be renewed on a physiological level. So all those things aren't even to mention the amazing benefits from being fit and active getting stronger, more confident, trimming down, uh, and then all of the physical health benefits and chronic disease prevention that most definitely affects our mental health. So the, there's the five um, priorities that I would say the research says are most important for optimal brain health. And uh, these are just things that you can look at and assess in your own life where you're at, and which ones need a little bit more attention. Um, for digging a little bit deeper, I'll just give a few minutes on digging a little bit deeper for how we can um, really pursue this optimal health for our brains. So eating a diet that is as diverse as possible of whole foods, as much as possible, the more whole the better, um, will just have profound impacts on our health overall and our brain health. If I was to go through every nutrient that we need for optimal brain health and all the different foods that they're found in, basically you would look at it and say, oh wow, just eat what comes from the earth. Eat natural whole foods and you'll be covering so many of your bases. Um, it's just, it blows me away. I'll never stop being amazed at the the benefits and the purposes of food and how it just put, comes together like a puzzle piece to create uh, this beautiful tapestry of nutrient um, nutrients and uh, nourishment for the body if we're eating close as closest to nature as we can. Um, so I would say food-wise, that is most important. And if you're doing that, you're going to be reaping so many more benefits. Even say someone like says, oh, I'm going to eat all organic, but doesn't eat whole foods and doesn't eat variety. They're still going to be worse off than the person who's like, well, I can't afford organic or I don't have access to it. And yet they're eating whole foods. Um, they're going to do much better health-wise. 
So eating that variety is so important. Addressing your gut health, which actually the steps I've given you, the five priorities, those all promote good gut health. Um, you can also consider trying to introduce some fermented foods. Just do a little bit at a time and see how you do as they're loaded with probiotics, which help to rebalance the, the flora in the gut. And then considering a good quality probiotic can be really helpful for some people. Um, to maximize your nutrient intake and lower inflammation, here's some tips for that. You want to eat that wide variety of vegetables, fruits, and meats. You want to add in some superfoods to your diet, so like goji berries, chia seed, turmeric, flax. Uh, you'll want to eat a variety of cooked and raw foods. Eat as colorful as possible. Eat the rainbow, I love to say. And then incorporating high-nutrient-dense foods that you have access to, like nuts and seeds, leafy greens are just incredible. Organ meats, if you can tolerate them. Um, different kinds of meats, wild meat. Um, you know, not just the white, uh, the dark meat on chicken. Basically, the more variety, the more you're filling in those gaps of deficiencies because the variety means different nutrient levels, and that just helps complete that puzzle. You'll want to swap out um, your vegetable oils for natural fats. And so um, the best fats that are the most closest to nature and not rancid would be things like olive oil, coconut oil, avocado oil, butter, lard, um, ghee, and I think that's about it. Um, things like soybean oil and canola, um, cottonseed, all of those are really, really processed and they use chemicals to extract them from the the food and they are rancid by the time they're even bottled. Um, they're just not ideal and they have been directly linked to inflammation and um, heart disease. So you want to stay away from those as much as possible. Another thing you can consider is a high quality fish oil supplement. As most of us, um, at least Westerners, uh, I'm sure other countries like Thailand who eats more seafood is a lot better, but a lot of people who don't incorporate seafood into their diet on a regular basis do not get enough omega-3s um, and the other benefits from seafood. So in, in using a fish oil supplement, um, usually at a higher dose, uh, like two to four a day, depending on how much is in them, can be really beneficial for inflammation and for prevention. So some people want, you know, they're really not in a good place and they want to just um, really do dramatic lifestyle shifts. And so what you could do, I would recommend, is go gluten, dairy, and sugar-free for 30 days and just see. It is the absolute best way to, to give your body that reset and see what it what it what gets better and what things were connected to those higher inflammatory foods that you just didn't realize and then you can slowly incorporate them back in and see how much you can tolerate and um, you know find a new way moving forward of what you can eat the other way that's even more intense for my uh intense personalities out there that want to go bigger is to do a Whole30, which is a dietary protocol that removes a lot of potentially um foods that may be potentially bothering you and your, your body. So you could do a whole 30 for 30 days. Um, those are two options. And I would say if you can do that with the support of a practitioner, but if not, there's a lot of good support online to help you navigate those. And then just some targeted nutrients that I have found um, in research and also um, 
just as I'm working with people anecdotally um, that help our B vitamins, especially, so again, that are helping optimal health, uh, optimal brain health, B vitamins, especially methyl B12 and methylfolate. It's important to get it in that methylated form for most people and B6, high quality fish oil, like I mentioned for omega-3s, vitamin D3, magnesium, curcumin, which is turmeric, um, adaptogenic herbs, multi-strain probiotic, and then you can dig a little bit deeper for neurotransmitter support, which depending on the health issues you have, be things like GABA or uh, L-theanine or 5-HTP, things like that. And so there's um, some of the nutrients that tend to really benefit brain health. Um, Again, this is uh, non-specific to you and your issues and your your struggles, your conditions, um, your lifestyle, everything like that. So I just wanted to give you some of this empowering information. I know it was probably like a tornado. Usually when I meet with my clients, the first session at the end, it's like, oh, wow. I, yep, it definitely felt like a tornado, but it was really, really good. And so I hope you feel the same today. Hopefully not too overwhelmed, but feeling the the benefit of this information and that moving forward, you can um, have some action steps that you can do to focus on boosting your brain health as um, just like we've said, emotional health, it matters and you finding pursuing healing and wholeness is worth it. And same on the health end, you setting aside and making space for healing, which is what I like to say, um, is totally, totally worth it. And the outcome, whether it's um, uh, just a night and day difference or it's um, more quality of life, it's worth it for your, for your life and for your family, for your future and so I just encourage you to, to do that. If you need to re-listen to some sections and take some notes, go for it. But um, I hope that this has been beneficial to you. And I hope that you find joy and encouragement as you are seeking overall health and wholeness in your life. So we'll see you next episode where Luke and I will be back together sharing with you. While it is a joy to provide our podcast content as a source of life enrichment, please note that information shared is not intended to replace or contradict any professional therapy or medical advice.